You're listening to Qalam Institute's podcast. Visit us on the web at qalaminstitute.org and join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash qalaminstitute. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. So inshallah we're continuing with the series on the prophetic biography, the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In last week's session, we're basically covering the part of the Prophet ﷺ, where we're at the point at this point in time in our series, we're covering the childhood of the Prophet ﷺ, and uh, we're actually talking about a portion or a part uh, and some experiences of his childhood, which are very well known, which are popularly addressed or spoken about, and um, that is his time, the time that he spent in the care. Um, and receiving upbringing from Khadija, uh, excuse me, Halima radiallahu anha. And I refer to her as radiallahu anha because later on we'll read in the seerah much, much further down the road, inshallah, that after Fatih Makkah, about a month after Fatih Makkah, and some actually say it was in the aftermath of the Battle of Hunayn, Halima uh, ends up accepting Islam. She and her family accepts Islam at that point in time. Nevertheless, at this point in time, of course, we're talking about the childhood of the Prophet. So Halima al-Sa'diyah, she comes to Mecca, she takes the Prophet ﷺ back to her home, to Banu Sa'd, to raise him and to look after him and care for him. And of course, there's some financial incentive and motive for her in that as well. And we talked about some of the very interesting experiences, Halima's blessing, and that how when she takes uh, the Prophet ﷺ, this baby, this child, this newborn child, Muhammad ibn Abdullah, she takes him home immediately, even on the journey back home, she starts to experience so many blessings. She starts to receive so many barakat and blessings and it seems like a turn of fortune for her and for her family. When she arrives back at home, all these blessings basically they continue. And they continue to receive blessings so much so that even the other people and Banu Sa'ad begin to note and they say, there's something special about this child that you've brought home. There's some type of blessing that you've recently come into that was not there before. And I, uh, I mentioned some of, the, some of those blessings and some of those things. The story that I ended on last time um, was, was very beautiful and it's a good, it's very symbolic and representative of that blessing overall that followed the Prophet ﷺ around even as a child, wherever he went, wherever he was. And that was that whole story about where Halima sees the Prophet ﷺ, she had told the older sister, Shayma, the older foster sister of the Prophet ﷺ, the milk sister of the Prophet ﷺ, Shayma, she had told her that, watch out for Muhammad, he's small, he's young, I need you to look out for him, I need you to watch out for him, especially because she realized, her and her husband realized, there's something special about this child. She sees the Prophet ﷺ sitting out there at noontime, out directly under the sun, in the middle of the desert, when even the animals look for a shade and the animals begin to nap at that time as well, because they can't even tolerate the heat. And she sees the Prophet ﷺ just sitting out there wide out in the middle of the open. And she sees the older sister sitting there next to him. So now she's not just worried, but she's furious, she's angry. And Halima storms out there, yelling at Shayma, her older daughter, that what are you doing? I told you to look out for him. And that's when Shayma basically tells her mother, she says that I've been watching younger brother, I watch Muhammad, and wherever he goes, he walks around in the sun and it doesn't even bother him. 
And it always puzzled me, how does he walk around and he's not bothered by the sun until I noticed there's always a shade over him. And I looked on top and there's a cloud over him that follows him wherever he goes, always casting a shade over him. And so he walks around and that's why I'm sitting so close next to him so I can get some of the shade as well. And it's just, it is what it is. I mean, that's it's something special about little brother. And so this is very symbolic of those blessings that the Prophet ﷺ was receiving even from childhood. Now, he was taken by Halima to, to, for, for his proper upbringing and to be taken care of shortly after he was born. I mentioned last time that there's nothing very inauthentic narrations, there's nothing that gives us a precise um, you know, duration of time that the Prophet ﷺ spent in the care of Halima, but it's, it's estimated to be about four or four and a half years that he lived with Halima, a Sa'diyah And he was brought back in between to visit his, to be with his mother. We, I mentioned that last time that the age of two, as was tradition, she brings him back and typically two years was the average amount of time that a child would spend out there with a wet nurse out in the desert away from the city. Um, but Halima was very motivated to take him back, obviously, for the continuation of these blessings. And it also coincided with the fact that there was a, a, an onslaught of a disease and an epidemic in Mecca at that time. And so, of course, the mother of the Prophet ﷺ was also inclined to send her only child away from any type of disease so that he could grow up, not just in the safety, but also in the healthy environment out there in the villages, out there in the desert, away from the city and its pollution. Now, during this next, the second phase of the Prophet ﷺ living in the care of Halima, there is a major incident that occurs at this point in time. The exact age of the Prophet ﷺ again is estimated, but it's somewhere in between the age of two and four. And so anywhere between the age of two and four, but based on the Prophet ﷺ's own behavior at that time, and the fact that the Prophet ﷺ had full recollection and memory of this fact, the scholars lean towards the fact that this was probably closer to the age of four. That this incident occurred towards closer to the age of four, especially because uh, as a consequence of this incident or this event, Halima decided to take the Prophet ﷺ back to his mother, back to Mecca and back to the care of his mother. And so this probably happened when the Prophet ﷺ was about four, four and a half years of age. And this is a continuation of that same narration that I was mentioning before about uh, Halima, the narration that she herself narrates, where she's talking about her taking this child and all the blessings that she experienced. She goes on to say, قَدْ جَاءَهُ رَجُلَانَ عَلَيْهِمَا ثِيَابٌ بِيضٌ فَأَضْجَعَاهُ فَشَقَى بَطْنَهُ فَخَرَجْشُ أَنَا وَأَبُوهُ نَشَّدُّ نَحْوَهُ So she goes on to say that basically his brother, so Halima herself had her own biological son by the name of Abdullah. And she says that Abdullah, the brother of Muhammad, the foster brother Muhammad, my son Abdullah, comes running to me, comes running to me and his father. And he says that over there, and he basically would refer to the Prophet ﷺ as Akhi al-Qurashi, my Qurayshi brother. Because the Prophet ﷺ biologically, he, ethnically, he didn't really belong to Banu Sa'ad, but he was a brother through, through nursing and through breastfeeding. So he says, Akhi al-Qurashi, he says, over there, over there, my brother, over there, my brother. Because he himself is a four-year-old child, he's not really even speaking properly, he just says, over there, over there, my brother. 
So he comes panting and breathing hard and he looks scared and he says, my brother, my brother. So Halima says, myself and his father rush over there in the direction where uh, our son Abdullah is pointing to us. We run out in that direction and another more extended narration actually mentions that Abdullah and Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the two childs, the two four or four and a half year olds were running around where some of our goats and our sheep were behind some tents that we had on our property. So on our farm we had some tents and behind the tents was where a lot of the goats and the sheep would uh, graze and Muhammad and Abdullah were running around playing over there where the goats and the sheep were grazing. And they also had some responsibility to kind of play around there and keep an eye on the goats and the sheep and make sure they didn't stray too far away. So they're over there running when Abdullah comes running to us and says, my brother, my brother. And he looks scared, he looks terrified. So we run out in that direction and she says that in one narration it actually mentions that Abdullah, while they're running in that direction, Abdullah basically tells him what's happening or what's, what's frightened him. And he mentions, Ja'ahu Rajulan. Two men came and they were wearing white clothes. And they came and they took Muhammad, my brother, and they laid him down. And then they began to split him open. They basically began to cut his chest open. His interior, they basically began to cut him open. And that's when I ran away and I came to you guys and one other narration says that the Prophet himself gives them a more full account afterwards he explains to his parents exactly what transpired and what happened and yet a third another narration and all three of these are all authentic and basically they all uh they, they all fit in very well with each other. But the third narration is actually later on during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ, when the Sahaba anhum asked the Prophet ﷺ about his childhood experiences. And one narration which I'll actually bring up later, Anas bin Malik anhu actually says that when the Prophet ﷺ told me this story, and he actually pulled his shirt up to show me that they cut me from here, and he mentions the hollow of his neck all the way down to his navel. So they cut me down all the way from the hollow of the neck all the way down to my navel. And Anas radiallahu anhu says, I was looking at the Prophet and I could actually see the line and I could actually see the scar along where they had cut him. And so all three of these narrations basically coincide and they corroborate and support each other. But nevertheless, Halima and her husband say that they go running to the Prophet ﷺ and they find him standing there and it actually mentions about the Prophet ﷺ that muntaqi an lawnahu muntaqi an lawnahu that basically his color he had lost all the color in his face what we would say he looked very pale he looked frightened he looked pale and something else we know about this subhanallah that even when somebody go undergoes some type of medical procedure that also that person would have that type of a pale look so the prophet ﷺ had that pale look uh, that any child would if they were frightened or they were scared and especially because he'd undergone just this procedure right now and the father, the foster father of the Prophet Halima's husband, actually asked the Prophet Ya Bunayya, my dear son, Ma sha'nuka, what happened to you? And now the Prophet actually describes what happened. He says, Ja'ani rajulan, alayhima thiyabun bidun, fa'adja'ani wa shaqa batani, thumma sakhraja minhu shay'an fataraha'hu, thumma raddahu kamakan, faraja'na bihi ma'ana. So then he actually, the Prophet tells his foster father, Halima's husband, Two men came to me 
and they were wearing white clothes. They laid me down. فَأَجْعَانِي And the word اِطْلِجَا uh, actually means, means to lay down on one's back. So they laid me down on my back. وَشَقَّ بَطَنِي And then they basically split me open. And then they took something out from inside of me. فَطَرَحَاهُ And then they threw it away. ثُمَّ رَدَّاهُ كَمَا كَانَ And then they returned everything back to the way it was. So they repaired me again. They put me back as I was before. And before I mention what happens as an aftermath to this, I, I'd like to mention what some of the more extended narrations make mention of. Some of the more extended narrations actually in the later life of the Prophet ﷺ, when he retold the story, he mentioned some other uh, details. He says in one narration that, ثُمَّ اسْتَخْرَجَا قَلْبِي They basically took my heart out. فَشَقَّاهُ And then they split my heart open. فَأَخْرَجَاهُ مِنْهُ عَلَقَةً سَوْدَا فَأَلْقَيَاهَا And then they took some type of a blood clot, like some black blood clot, like some black little thing, if you will, right? Just something that was black. They pulled it out of my heart. They, they, they extracted it from inside of my heart and they threw it away. ثُمَّ غَسَلَا قَلْبِي وَبَطَنِي بِذَلِكَ الثَّلَجِ And then it actually mentions in one of the narrations that when the two men came and they laid the Prophet ﷺ down, one of them told them where is the, the dish? And they basically had a, a dish that was made out of gold. And in that, the man tells him, he goes, where is the ice? One narration, the Prophet ﷺ actually mentions it was Zamzam. In another narration, it actually mentions that it wasn't just Zamzam, but it was ice. There was ice in the Zamzam. And he gives it to him. And then the Prophet ﷺ mentions that they took my heart out, they split it open, they extracted some black entity out of the heart, some black element out of the heart. And then they washed my heart in that water, in that ice, Zamzam water. They washed my heart, and they washed my inside with that water, and they returned my heart back, and then they basically sewed me up and they returned me back to my original condition. So this is the extent of the entire procedure that the Prophet ﷺ describes which took place with him on that day. It actually mentions another narration, another, another narration mentions some more detail. When the Prophet ﷺ actually describes these two men coming, he actually in one narration mentions the fact that they basically came down from the sky. It's as if they were flying down. Ta'iran. Yatirani. He actually mentions this fact that they were flying. So they were wearing white and they flew down. So they were like angels in that sense. Uh, because we know from the other narration in Bukhari, by the way, these, these narrations are mentioned in many different books of Sirah. In all the books of Sirah, Ibn Ishaq mentions these narrations along with all the other Mufassirun. Of course, I'm taking it here from Al Bidayah wa Nihayah, Imam Ibn Kathir's collection on the Sirah of the Prophet. But these hadith are also found in the, uh, the different various books of hadith as well. Um, the most famous of them is found in the Sahih of Imam Muslim and other books of narration. The most detailed narration is also mentioned in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad. So these are all authentically uh, narrated uh, traditions and narrations about this entire incident. So he actually mentions that they came flying down. And they performed this entire procedure on the Prophet of Allah wasallam. It In another narration, he actually mentions that after they performed this procedure, then a conversation takes place between these angels. 
And this is also mentioned by the Prophet ﷺ, where he says, "Qala ahduhuma li sahibihi zinhu bi'ashiratim min ummatihi." That he actually says that weigh him against ten people from his ummah. Weigh him against ten people of, of his ummah. Fawazantuhum. I was fawazanani bi'ashiratin fawazantuhum. He weighed me against ten people of my ummah, and I outweighed them. Then weigh him against a hundred people of his ummah. They weighed me against a hundred and I outweighed them. Then he weighed me against a thousand people of my ummah and I outweighed all of them. Then he said, And then he said that, leave him now because if I was to weigh him against all of his ummah combined together, he would outweigh them. And what that basically means, what that references in the Prophet ﷺ in another narration, he explains that basically they were weighing the Prophet Sallallahu whether it be his iman, it be his spirituality, and even his endurance. And what the Prophet ﷺ was capable of enduring, what he was capable of tolerating, that the Prophet ﷺ's endurance, his ability, his stamina, his emotional fortitude and strength, and his iman, his spiritual conviction, outweighed all of the ummah put together. And this is further corroborated many other times, where the Prophet ﷺ in a hadith that is muttafaq alayh, the Prophet ﷺ says, I have been threatened more than anybody else and I've been tortured or I've been hurt more than anybody else. In another narration towards the end of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, when he was experiencing sakarat, when he was experiencing the pangs of death, the nearness of death, the Prophet ﷺ was experiencing this and he actually asks Jibreel ﷺ, who is there to comfort the Prophet ﷺ, he asked him that, is this something everyone experiences? Jibreel said, yes, O Messenger of Allah, this is something that everyone experiences. This is not a punishment of a sort, but when the soul is getting ready to depart the body, a certain amount of pain is something that everyone will experience because they're transitioning from this life into the afterlife. At that time, the Prophet actually made an offer. He made a dua, he made a supplication that, oh Allah, I will take the pain and the suffering of all of my ummah of the sakarat and the pangs of death, give it to me, inflict it upon me, but please don't put my, anybody from my ummah through this experience that I'm going through right now. So we see from these different narrations throughout the life of the Prophet ﷺ, that the Prophet ﷺ was able to endure a lot more than anybody else, than all of the ummah put together. And this was basically what was being stated at that time. I'll talk about some of the lessons and some of the things that we can learn from this um, in just a bit. What I'd like to do before that is, I'd like to go ahead and talk about, complete the actual narration and talk about what exactly transpired afterwards. So now that Halima comes, Halima and her husband, they come and they find the Prophet ﷺ. And as I mentioned before that the color from his face was completely flushed and the child obviously looked like he had been through an experience and he basically describes to them exactly what had happened. Halima and her husband, they take him home. One narration actually mentions that Halima's husband, the foster father of the Prophet ﷺ, he actually immediately hugged the Prophet ﷺ and he carries him back to the house and they, 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 they lay him down down and they allow him to rest and they immediately talk, they speak with each other, what should we do? And 
they're very worried. They have no idea what has exactly happened and what their son and what the Prophet is describing to him, to them is, you know, it's very, not only is it difficult to believe for them, but even if they do believe, because they obviously realize there's something special about the child, but then they're obviously worried. You know, I wonder what's happened and what could be the after effects of what's transpired with this child. So what should we do? Halima's husband basically says, we have no choice but to take him back to Mecca. We immediately have to take him back to Mecca. And, and then one other thing that um, the narration actually mentions is Halima's husband says that we need to take him back and give him back to his mother before anything else happens to him. Before anything else happens to him because we don't know what else could transpire. Maybe somebody's after him. Maybe this is some supernatural force that is at work. Either way, whatever's happening, we have no idea. It's beyond our control. It's something we can't handle. We need to take him back to his mother before anything else happens. And one other thing that they at least talk about amongst themselves is we should not tell the Prophet's mother what has happened to him. Because, and these, these, they weren't bad people like they're trying to slip one by. They say, you know, what's already happened, happened. And as long as we get him back home away from here, then he should be safe. And what's the, what's the benefit in worrying his mother any further? So let's just take him back to his mother. He already doesn't have a father. What is a single mother going to do? She's already probably nervous about raising this child on her own. What's the benefit in worrying her any further? Take him home, give him to the mother, and then let's just come back home safe and sound. Make sure Muhammad is safe and sound with his family where he belongs. They, they don't wait a second and they take him right back to Makkah. They rush back to Makkah. They go to Amina, the mother of the Prophet ﷺ. They hand the child over to the Prophet ﷺ. And the mother says, how come you guys are back already? How come you're returning him back? And they say, you know, we fulfilled the original agreement, the original contract, which was two years. And so we thought it was a good time to bring him back. And she, I, I, I'd mentioned before that Amina was very intelligent. When talking about the mother of the Prophet, she was an extremely intelligent woman. So she says that, no, no, there's something that's going on. Something's up. Because you look frightened. She tells Harima, you look very, very scared. And the way you negotiated, the way you begged and pleaded with me last time when you brought him to take him back home, I was worried if you would ever even bring him back home ever again. I thought I would have to come get him. And the fact that you rush him and you're ready to just drop him off right away and take off right away, something's up. Tell me what's going on. This is my child. I want you to tell me exactly what's happened. And so she says, She didn't leave us be until we finally told her exactly everything that had happened. As a response to this, the mother, Amina, the mother of the Prophet she says, are you worried that shaitan or some other evil force got a hold of him or some spirits or demons or something have done something bad to him? Do you want me to tell you something about him? She says, She says, absolutely not. You don't need to worry. Nothing bad has happened to him. Whatever's happened, it's nothing bad. Because she said, shaitan can't even lay a finger on him. Shaitan can't do anything to him. Wallahi innahu li she says, this son of mine, he's going to be somebody very, very special. There's something very huge that, that, that's waiting for him in his future. There's, he's a big deal and there's something very important. And he's, something very important is going to happen with him. Allah, <laughs> You want me to really tell you about him? She, 
We said, of course. قالت, بيه, she says, when I was carrying him, she says, it wasn't like I was even carrying anything. I could never feel any weight, any burden, any difficulty when I was pregnant with him, when I was carrying him. فأريد في النوم حين حملت به كأنه خرج مني نور نضاءت له قصور الشام. She says when I was pregnant with him I would see dreams that a light was coming out of my womb, a light was coming out of my belly, out of my stomach that was that was filling the palaces of Asham, the palaces of Asham in Syria with with nur and with light. It was illuminating the entire world. ثم وقع حين ثم وقع حين ولته وقوعا ما يقع and when I gave birth to him, when he came out from me, he he came out from me in a way that normal children do not. He was not crying. He actually leaned forward on his own hands. He raised his head up to the sky as a newborn child after I gave birth to him. And we obviously in this um, series, we've talked about it, that the entire house became filled with nur. The women who were there, uh, the mother of Hakim bin Hizam, the mother of Abdurrahman bin Auf, the women that were there assisting the Prophet in giving the, the mother of the Prophet in giving birth, um, they talk about how they were literally blinded for a few seconds, they couldn't see anything. And so she tells him about all of the blessings that have transpired since she became pregnant with him, the dreams that she saw, the angels that would come and speak to her, who informed her of the name that the child should be given. And she tells them about the miraculous things that were transpiring even the day that the, the Prophet was born. So she says, ankuma." She says that, don't worry about anything. Nothing bad has happened to him and nothing bad can happen to this child. And so it basically mentions that they leave the Prophet ﷺ with his mother. They leave him there in the care of his mother and they return back home. Now, there are many other narrations which basically corroborate this and which provide different types of details um, in terms of the same incident. In one of the narrations, it mentions Urwa uh, ibn Zubayr radiallahu anhuma mentions from Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiallahu anhu qala qultu ya Rasulullah kayfa alimta annaka nabiyun hina alimta dhalika wastayqanta annaka nabi. And he says that how did you know that you were a prophet? Like when did you first realize and truly believe that there was something unique that was going to happen with you? Like of course you only, you got the full context of the understanding and you received the divine revelation. You know, اِقْرَى بِسْمِ رَبِّكَ الَّذِي خَلَقَ At the age of 40 in the cave of Hira. But when did you first begin to realize there was something unique, something different about you? And the Prophet ﷺ says, يَا أَبَا ذَرْ أَتَانِي مَلَكَانِ وَأَنَا بِبَعْضِ بَطْحَاءِ مَكَّةِ فوقع أحدهما على الأرض وكان الآخر بين السماء والأرض فقال أحدهما لصاحبه أهو هو قال هو هو قال فزنه برجل فوزنت برجل فرجحته وذكر تمام الحديث وذكر شق صدره وخياطته وجعل الخاتم بين كتفيه فقال فما هو إلا أن so the Prophet ﷺ says, Oh Abu Dhar, I knew that there was something unique or special about me when two angels came to me. When I was in the valley or I was in the nearby valleys of Mecca. So he's basically talking about the time when he was in the care of Halima as-Sa'diyah. 
He says, one of them came and landed onto the ground next to me. The other one was between the earth and the sky, was still up in the air. And he says to the one who had landed, Ahua Hua, are you sure that this is him? This is that child? Faqala Hua Hua. He says, yes, he's the one. He's the one that we've been sent to, that we've been look, looking for. And then the Prophet says that he told him to weigh me against a person. And they weighed me and I was heavier than that person. And then he mentions the rest of the hadith. He mentions the fact that his chest was split. He mentions that it was sewed back up. And it also mentions that that is when that I had mentioned that there was a birthmark the Prophet had. I had mentioned this in the, uh, the, the session during the series where we talked about the birth of the Prophet that he had a birthmark on, the, on his back between his shoulder blades which was like a cluster of moles and it actually mentions that this is when that started becoming more apparent and one narration actually men mentions that the angels actually looked at that uh, that birthmark on the back of the Prophet which will later on be, uh, be referred to as the Khatimun Nubuwa or the Khatimun Nubuwa that was one of the signs of the Prophet and that was one of the signs that he was the seal of prophethood and so this also, this narration also mentions this. And then one very interesting thing that it mentions is that they, they did all of this with me and the Prophet ﷺ says, I was watching all of this happening. I was watching all of this happening and then the Prophet ﷺ actually mentions that I can remember that incident as if it's happening before my very eyes. So this is mentioned by the Prophet And then one of the, and then, some other narrations, now that we covered this entire incident, that this transpired, this happened with the Prophet ﷺ when he was a child, and that his chest was split open, it was all washed, it was returned back, and then his foster parents decided to return him back to Mecca, back to his home, back to his mother. Now, did this ever happen with the Prophet ﷺ again? So, there are other narrations which talk about the fact that this happened again with the Prophet ﷺ on the night on which he was taken in the journey of Al-Isra Wal-Mi'raj. During the journey of Al-Isra Wal-Mi'raj, he was prepared for the journey of Al-Isra Wal-Mi'raj and this happened with him again. That he was, and the Prophet ﷺ actually mentions, he was about 50 years old of age. At that time, he was in, um, he went to the Kaaba, to the Baytullah, you know, because w the journey of Al-Isra Wal-Mi'raj was, the Prophet ﷺ was first instructed to go from his home to Baytullah, and there he prayed in the Hatim. The Hatim is that portion of the, the Kaaba, the Baytullah, which was not included in the construction of the Kaaba. And if you ever visit there, or even if you, even if you haven't been there yourself, I recommend that you go online and try to take a look. But it's that half circle area um, that is technically part of the, the Baytullah itself, but was not included in the final construction of the Baytullah. And so praying in that, inside of there, that little half circle is as if you're praying inside of Baytullah. And the Prophet used to, it was a regular habit of his, used to love to go and pray inside of that area. So the Prophet went inside of there and prayed two rakat, and after he prayed those two rakat, he was basically again laid down. And one narration actually mentions that he was leaned against uh, the Baytullah, the Kaaba, and at that time the angels performed the same procedure upon the Prophet ﷺ, and the same thing happened with him again. So it happened a minimum of two times in the opinion of the majority of the scholars of the seerah. But there is a third incident which is a weaker narration but nevertheless it mentions that he was a, when he was about 10 or 12 years of age. So as if to prepare him for adulthood. 
When he reached the age of about 10 or 12 and he was about to enter into adulthood, he was about to hit puberty, adolescence, that at that time it happened for the second time. So technically it happened a full three times with the Prophet ﷺ to prepare him for adulthood. But again, as I mentioned, that narration which mentions it happened at the age of 10 or 12 is weaker um, in strength. But at a very minimum, it happened, of, it happened with the Prophet ﷺ two times that this incident occurred. Um, now talking about... What can we exactly take home from this? What can we derive from this? And what do we learn from this? So, the very first thing I should mention here is why did this even happen with the Prophet ﷺ? So there's many different um, thoughts and ideas on this. Generally, what the scholars mention is that the very first thing the scholars talk about is that there's a, there's, there's a little bit of... Um, there's a little bit of coming to terms with the fact that this even happened with the Prophet ﷺ. You know, in more recent times and more modern times, particularly within the last three to four centuries, with the um, onslaught of certain academic uh, presentations of the Qur'an or even of the seerah, the life of the Prophet ﷺ, which we basically refer or allude to as Orientalism, um, there's... A lot of discussion as to the validity of such a narration or the validity of such an incident. Did something like this even happen? What is the validity of something like this happening? To what extent should we believe in something like this actually transpiring with the Prophet ﷺ? Orientalists have basically dismissed these narrations as a fairy tale or as the imagination of you know certain storytellers of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And they basically refer to these narrations as being completely preposterous. You know, how could you believe in something like this? How could a medical procedure be happening like this 1400 years ago? How could he survive like this? Who are these people doing it? It's just completely preposterous. This is just the imagination of Muslims. What we basically understand is that these come to us through authentic sources. And the second thing is believing in something out of the ordinary. Believing in something out of the ordinary, extraordinary about the Prophet ﷺ is not something that we have trouble with. It's the Messenger of Allah And it's actually a test of our Iman. That if something extends beyond you know, what we grasp as reality or possibility, that doesn't mean that it's not true. So much of the Qur'an could fall under that context and we actually see those same people will only be willing to come to terms or accept something from the Qur'an when it can be made to fit their grasp of reality. It can be catered to their rational, rationale, all right, their intelligence, their grasp of things, then and only then will they only ex accept. But we understand that, of course not. For us primarily, accepting and believing is something that is a test of our iman, our faith, and its own its fortitude. And so it does not, it's not far-fetched for us to believe in something like this. So we completely grasp it, and we have no problems with believing in it. But now, why did something like this happen? Because on the, at the same time, we have to have a sense of balance. Are we literally medically going to read so much into it that we're going to say, ah, so the evil and the shar of every human being is actually like some black little element inside of somebody's heart biologically. So now let's start per performing open heart surgery in the Muslim community, taking that black thing out of it, boom, I don't have to worry about ever committing a sin ever again. You've been cured, right? So is, is that what we're talking about? Is that what we're dealing with? And of course not.
Obviously not. These are the khususiyat. These are the, this is the ikhtisas. This is something that is unique and special to the Prophet So there needs to be balance when we talk about this. We don't take it so literally where we start now performing these procedures on people to remove the evil from people's heart and then they never have to worry again about anything. And at the same time, we don't completely dismiss it because it doesn't fall within our grasp of reality. I can't make sense of it medically, scientifically, so it must be bogus. Of course not, there's a balance. We believe it happened. But it's something that happened by the divine decree of Allah, by the instruction of Allah, by the guidance of Allah, through the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and it was specific to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Alright? And so, what, why now exactly was it done to the Prophet And what are some of the benefits or what are some of the wisdoms in this? Number one, of course it was to remove, and the Prophet alludes to this in certain narrations, in a conversation with um, Aisha radiallahu anha, when he asks her one time, did you become jealous? Were you feeling jealous? When she was acting out one time, and the Prophet asked her, were you jealous? He said, she said, yeah, of course I was jealous. Of course I was jealous. And then the Prophet said, well then the shaitan, your shaitan was, had gotten a hold of you. Your shaitan got the best of you and that's why you felt jealous. So then Aisha radiallahu anha asks the Prophet does everyone have a shaitan? He said, yes, everyone's got a shaitan attached to them who tries to take them in the wrong direction, who tries to make them make bad decisions. Then he asked, then she asked the Prophet even you, O Messenger of Allah? The Prophet said, yeah, even a shaitan attached himself to me, but fa'aslama. But that shaitan became Muslim. Alright, that shaitan became Muslim. In another narration, the Prophet ﷺ says, but my shaitan does not have control over me, I have control over him. Meaning I beat him, he doesn't beat me, he doesn't get the best of me, I got the best of him. So some scholars mentioned that one of the benefits of this, this was cleansing the heart of the Prophet ﷺ, freeing him from those influences which are the evil influences, the nafs, the carnal desires, the influence of shaitan, that was what was extracted. فَطَرَحَاهُ They took it out and they threw it away. The second benefit of this was, and this is why, this is what uh, makes sense of that fact that this happened not once, but two, possibly three times with the Prophet ﷺ, that the washing of the heart and the cleansing of the heart with that water of Zamzam by the hands of the angels in a golden dish that came from Jannah, from, from heaven itself, was basically fortifying, it was strengthening the heart of the Prophet ﷺ, لِإِلْقَاءِ Quran. To receive divine revelation, divine inspiration, and to be able to bear the Qur'an. To be able to carry the Qur'an, to receive the Qur'an. Because we know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet that this divine revelation, this Qur'an that is sent down, it's very heavy. And we actually know narrations that mentions, Aisha radiallahu anha mentions that one time when the Prophet was laying down and he had his head in my lap, on my leg, he was resting his head on my thigh, and he was laying down in home, and divine revelation began, began to come down upon him, that she says his head became so heavy, I was afraid that he was going to crush my leg, like I was crying and I was screaming because I could not carry the weight of his head on my leg, when he would receive divine revelation. It mentions that sometimes when the Prophet ﷺ would be on his camel, or he'd be on the animal, on transportation, and divine revelation would come, many times the animal would sit 
sit down and begin to moan under the weight of the divine revelation. It mentions that when the Prophet would receive divine revelation, he would become completely red and he would sweat profusely to the point where sometimes he would become soaking wet. And many times it was like he would black out literally, like he couldn't see clearly because of the pressure that was coming down on him when he would receive divine revelation. So we see from all of this that it was very heavy. So this was the heart of the Prophet ﷺ that was being treated and was being prepared to eventually receive divine revelation. Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. Secondly then, the scholars say then, why would it happen in this type of a physical manner? Why would there be a physical procedure like this? Why wouldn't it happen more in spiritual terms? Why would it happen like literally like surgery? Right? Why would it happen like a physical medical procedure like this? This was lil i'lan. This was basically to make it a publicly known thing that something unique had happened with this child so that the child himself would realize the people close to the child like Halima, like her husband, like his foster brother and sisters, like his biological mother Amina, just so that the people immediately around him would also realize something is happening with this child. Something is continuing to transpire with this child. And this child is on his way to achieving great things and it was almost like a public announcement and that's why in that narration of Anas bin Malik عنه, he actually mentions that I saw the scar I saw the line down the chest of the Prophet So these are just a few details and a few uh, the narrations which make mention of this major incident from the life of the Prophet So with the, with the occurrence of this event, the stay of the Prophet in the care of Halima in amongst the people of Banu Sa'ad came to a close. She brings him back to Makkah. He is about four, four and a half years old at this particular time. And she hands him back over to his mother Amina, at which time the Prophet spends about three years, um, uh, or rather about two, two and a half years with his mother Amina at this point in time. And at that, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the Prophet ﷺ stay with his mother. What happened during those two years that he stayed in Mecca, amongst the Quraysh, amongst the Banu Hashim, with under the supervision and his care of not just his mother, but also the continued care of his grandfather. And basically, we will also then talk about the passing of the mother of the Prophet ﷺ after about two years of spending. Uh, being in the care of his mother and then we'll continue on from there in the next session inshallah um, you know I, um, I always like to end on some type of a note of you know something that we can learn and that we can take from the seerah we actually learn a lot here we learn a lot about the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and that in and of itself is something that we accomplish because you can't love somebody, and I mentioned this to begin with, you can't love someone until you truly know them and you understand them. And so for in our journey in loving um, the Prophet of Allah وسلم, we first have to get to know about him and we have to understand exactly what happened with him. So this is of benefit in and of itself, but just something to take home and something to think about that I don't think I made specific mention of. I, really, I don't think I really um, drove this point home and I'd like to take this opportunity to do so. And that is, we know obviously, because in talking about Halima radiallahu anha, taking the Prophet into her care, the Prophet was a yatim, he was an orphan. Meaning his father had passed away. And as we're going to learn in the coming weeks, even his mother passes away when he's only at the age of six. 
And so the Prophet ﷺ is an orphan, not just in the technical sense that he was, when he was born, his father had already passed away, but he's even an orphan in the modern context, you know, how we understand it, and that is that he's lost both of his parents at the age of six when he's only still a child. And it really, really reminds us of something. You know, everything that happened with the Prophet ﷺ, none of it, everything that happened with him was by divine decree. Everything that happens is with divine decree. But everything that happens with the Prophet is part of the divine plan. It's very specifically happening. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fixed it into the life experience of the Prophet so that it would be a lesson for the generations to come. For millennia to come, people would continue to read it, know it, and learn from it. And the fact that the Prophet was an orphan is again no coincidence. The fact that he lost his parents is no coincidence. And we'll talk about some of the specific benefits, inshallah, in the weeks to come. But one of the things I'd like to mention here is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and I talked to you about this last week, how two of the women who nursed the Prophet one of them who he would very endearingly for the rest of his life refer to as Ya Um, Ya Um, Oh Mother, Oh Mother. Alright, she, she was somebody very important to him, a mother figure to him for the rest of his life. She, I mentioned the fact that she was African, she was Ethiopian, she was East African. She was black in an Arab society, all right, which prided itself on family and lineage and ethnicity and race. That was no coincidence. One of the aunts of the Prophet his father's older sister, was albino. I had mentioned this before. She was albino. To once again, that what might be perceived as some type of a, you know, a, a disability or some physical disfigurement, something that is very wrong with somebody. The aunt of the Prophet was albino. So to show you that these things didn't ma don't make a difference. These were still the family of the Prophet These were people who shaped him, people who influenced him, people that he loved very dearly. And at the same time, the Prophet was an orphan. To remove any type of aib or ar, any type of you know um, negative association with being an orphan. That you know sometimes when we mention the virtue of things, the Prophet was the very first hafiz of the Quran, and that's why being a hafiz is such a great thing amongst the other virtues. The first, the Prophet was the first one to pray. The Prophet was the first one to do this, to the first one to do that. Well, the Prophet was also the first orphan of this ummah. He was the first orphan from the ummah of the Prophet was the Prophet of Allah And so it removes any type of indignity, any type of negative association with being an orphan. And it actually gives great virtue. And this is a, an emotional consolation. This is a consolation to anyone who might end up in the difficulty and the adversity of being an orphan. That that person should not feel like, the, like something is against them. That person should not feel downtrodden. That person does not, should not feel like they are any less of a human being. Because the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was an orphan. And we as a society and as a community need to also look at them and reflect at them similarly. When we look at an orphan, let us remind, remind us of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And if I had the opportunity, what type of care, consideration, Love and affection would I shower upon the Messenger of Allah that similar type of love, affection and consideration needs to be offered to any orphan that I come across. 
And so just a little bit of a reflection, a reminder, and something to go home with, inshallah, from the life of our beloved Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa May Allah give us the reality and the understanding of the life of the Prophet, sallallahu May Allah grant us the true love of his Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa Subhanallahi wa bihamdihi, subhanakallahu bihamdik, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayka.